can't tell if the chemistry is good by looking at it. It wasn't clear yesterday. For the last time, the saltwater pool is a chlorine pool. This is the Talking Pools podcast with pool pros from every region in the country. If it happens in a pool, you'll hear about it here. Everything from tips and hacks to the latest tricks and trends, breaking news. We lay it on the line. We tell it like it is because we think you deserve to know. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Testing Thursdays with Wayne Ivasich on the Talking Pools podcast. Hope everybody has had a good week. And today, what we're going to be talking about as a little bit of a follow-up to the previous one. You know, got all this testing equipment. You got a test kit. You got some, some kind of system in order to test the water. Now what? Well, this is the now what. These are what I call testing techniques. These are the little things that you should be doing on a fairly regular basis whenever you're testing water to make sure that you are getting the most accurate reading you possibly can that represents the water you're testing. Therefore, you're able to treat the water properly. Therefore, with the right amount of chemical, so you don't cause problems by unintentionally underdosing or overdosing. So let's go over some of these common sense, quite honestly, testing techniques. Now, I know a lot of us don't have common sense sometimes. Some of us have too much. The too much people are called Karens. But anyhow, let's let's talk about some testing techniques. First of all, let's talk about the system that, that you're using. You want to make sure that you have fresh product, whether it's a liquid reagent, tablets, powder, whatever it is you're using. You want to make sure that they're viable. In other words, they haven't expired. Most liquid reagents from most test kit manufacturers that make them, their liquid reagents are good for about two years from the date of creation. These manufacturers print on the label usually two things, a lot code, which internally tells the manufacturer when it was created, and then an expiration date or a best used by date or you know discard after date or whatever you want to call it, which is generally two years. Some liquid reagents and some powdered reagents have a relatively indefinite shelf life. In other words, they're good forever. Long after you and I have turned to dust, these are the acids. Sulfuric acid, hydrochloric acid, things like that. You really have to work hard to make these things go bad. And good luck on that one if you're going to try. So they're relatively indefinite. Some testing products have shorter shelf lives. These are generally the the reagents and the powders that are in either a brown solid container or some kind of an opaque vial so that sunlight does not get to the actual product itself. Uh, because these are called natural oxidizers. And sunlight, heat, air can make them go bad and go bad quickly. A perfect example of this would be those of you who are familiar with DPD Reagent 2 or DPD 2. That's in a solid brown container. If I uncap that 
and left it open and exposed to outside air, heat, and light. It's going to go bad and go bad rather quickly. How quickly? I've seen it go bad in under 30 minutes. And how do you know it's gone bad? Well, DPD number two should be colorless, completely colorless. If you've ever used DPD number two and it comes out of the bottle pink or red, it's oxidized out, it's no longer good, toss it, get a new bottle. Just does not work. Other examples of oxidizer and kind of reagents. Those of you who do the drop test for chlorine or bromine, the powder, again, in an opaque container, high oxidizer. Don't expose it to air, heat, and light, humidity, things like that. Those of you who test for salt, silver nitrate is another example of, of an oxidizer. It's in a brown bottle. And again, should come out of that bottle completely colorless. Let's make sure that the reagents and all the, the, the pieces that you're using are clean and viable and good to go. Then let's talk about the actual case itself that all these things come in. You got to keep it clean. You can't let it build up with water. You can't let it be dirty. First, it looks like crap and will look like crap in front of a customer. And they're not going to think highly of you if you pull this thing out that looks like it was dragged through the mud. So you want to keep it clean. You've got a, a nice kit. You've got you've got all your, your testing uh, pieces together and you're ready to go. And you step up to the pool. Now what? Well... Follow the instructions. I can't emphasize that or not. Am I going to say it again? Yes, you are, Wayne. Follow the instructions. They're there for a reason. That's why they're written for you to follow, to do the test right, to get the right answer. I cannot tell you how many times I talked to people over the years when I did technical work for Taylor for 31 years. I had people say, well, I didn't do step two because I didn't think I needed it. What? You know, it's there for a reason. We just don't write these things frivolously just to entertain ourselves. They're there for a reason. It's called chemistry. Follow the instructions. Don't try to shortchange things. Don't try to circumvent what we know works. Read the instructions, number one. Number two, if the test instructions tell you to collect a sample, how do you do it? Well, the ideal situation would be is to collect your sample, if you're using a comparator block or a test vial or some other container, is to submerge the, the container, opening up, and immerse it 15 inches to 18 inches below the surface of the water, roughly the bend in your elbow, and away from any return lines that go back into the pool or spot. Why is Mr. Wayne telling us this? Well, Mr. Wayne is telling you this because... The first few inches surface of the water itself has insufficient, I won't say circulation, but it will give a false low usually reading of what the true parameter value is in the water because of the surface. You need to go deeper in order to get a more representative sample. Now, why am I getting a sample away from a return line? Well, let's think this one through, people. Common sense again. Say you have a very elaborate system, and in, in this elaborate system, when you're returning water back into the pool, you're also feeding sanitizer, you may be feeding acid, you may be feeding something else automatically, that a concentrated amount of whatever it is you're feeding is in the return line and gets into the pool. Well, if you take your sample in front of a return line, you're going to get that concentrated amount, and then you're going to get a wrong answer. You're going to get a false high answer. you got to go down 18 inches, bend in your elbow, and away from a return line. 
Now, in an ideal world, in the perfect world, you should be taking a sample from the shallow end and taking a sample from the deep end and then averaging out the two answers. Who's got the time for that? Where do you go? Well, what I usually like to do is go to just about the point where if there's a deep end, it starts to slope down towards the deep end around a, a foot or two away from where it starts to starts to slope, making sure there's no return line around. That's where I'd like to get my water from. I know a lot of service people who have kind of played inventor and have created a system where they attach a sample bottle to a pole. And if there's a diving board, they'll go out on the end of the diving board and submerge this apparatus into as far down in the water as they can go. I think that's ingenious, a little messy, but uh, potentially messy, but I think it's an ingenious way of, of getting a, a decent sample. But 18 inches is all you really need to get down to bend in your elbow away from a return line. Following back to the instructions, make sure you're using the right sample size. If the test asks you to use 10 mils, use 10 mils. More is not better. Less is not better. Use what the instructions tell you to use. Now, for most drop tests, you're going to get a, a 25 mil sample size or maybe a 10 mil sample size. That's fine. Okay, but make sure that you're using the correct amount, the correct 10 mil or 25 mils. Also, when you collect the sample, take a look at where the water and collect your sample in your in your test file, your comparative block, whatever. I'm probably going to say comparative block because I've been saying it for 31 years. Make sure that you don't see something called a meniscus curve. Now, a meniscus is, yes, I know, it's a little tendon in your knee. I know that, tearing meniscus and all that. But in chemistry, a meniscus curve is when you collect a sample of water and you see on the top, the water has a slight curve to it, like the sides have been or higher than where the middle of the of the sample is itself. That's called a meniscus curve. That's okay. Don't panic. Just make sure that the top of the meniscus curve, okay, is where you want your water sample to be, not the bottom, okay, because you're going to get an inaccurate amount of water, and you're going to possibly change the overall reading that you're going to get. So make sure that curve and curve is, is at that level at 25 or 10 or whatever the test kit instructions tell you. When you're adding your treatment, you're not your treatment, you're testing products to the water to do a test. Again, follow the instructions. If you're adding a liquid reagent, always remember to hold the bottle straight up and down. Never hold it on a slant or diagonally because the dropper tips in these bottles are designed to deliver a certain amount of product per drop. Again, referring back to what I know, because that's what I did for so long, the dropper tips on a Taylor a liquid reagent are designed to deliver 25 drops per milliliter, give or take a drop. That's how all of our tests are pretty much designed for. However, if you slightly slant that bottle, in other words, you don't hold it straight up and down when you're squeezing the drops out, your drop size is going to decrease. Therefore, you're going to add more smaller drops than what you would think, which can result in a false high value. Okay, I'll repeat that because sometimes it's not doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But by slanting the bottle, you're decreasing the drop size that you're adding to your sample water, and you could result in a false 
high value. Hold the bottle straight up and down. Well, Mr. Wayne, sometimes I've held the bottle straight up and down and the drops keep coming out and I'm not even squeezing the damn thing. What's going on? Well, it happens. And what you're seeing is a little bit of static electricity built up around the tip of the reagent bottle. It happens, particularly in very humid climates. There's a very simple uh, workaround for that. All you do is take a clean paper towel or cloth, cotton cloth, and wipe around the tip. Not over the tip now, but around the tip. And that discharges any, any static, and therefore you get the correct dropper size. Okay, so hold the bottle straight up and down. Going back to the instructions, remember how important they are. It will tell you, add it drop by drop, swirling between each drop. That doesn't mean add five drops, then swirl, or add 20 drops, then swirl. Drop by drop. That means drop, swirl, drop, swirl, drop, swirl. You, you will get to the point, it's kind of like when you pat your head and rub your tummy at the same time, you can swirl and drop at the same time. It's always fun to see newbies try to do that. They get very frustrated, but they get, they'll learn. They'll learn how to do it together. Drop, swirl, drop, swirl, drop, swirl. We kind of alluded to it in an earlier podcast, but how do you know you've reached endpoint? Well, you know you've reached endpoint by following what I call the endpoint plus one drop rule, which means that if you think you've reached the endpoint color for whatever test it is you're doing, but you're not exactly sure, add one more drop of the titrant. If it doesn't change color, your endpoint was the previous drop. If it continues to change color, you haven't reached endpoint. You have to keep on adding that titrant until it stops changing color. That's your endpoint. That's the correct endpoint. Now, if you're doing a test and the test requires you to add a scoop of powder or something like that, then make sure you're adding the correct amount. Again, more is not necessarily better. Less is worse. More, depending upon what test you're doing, sometimes if, if it's more than what you need, the powder will crystallize and fall to the bottom of the test cell and won't interfere with the test. If it's less than what you need, then you're not getting the right amount of product in there. Therefore, you could get a wrong answer. Make sure that it's the, the, the scoop or the spoon or whatever it is you're using is level. And the instructions will specifically state that. Everybody who uses test strips, you've got some things to think about. Earlier, I mentioned that you need to collect a sample 18 inches, 15 to 18 inches below the surface, the bend in your elbow. Okay. When you're doing test strips, you got to do the same thing. You can't just take a test strip and swirl it across the surface and then read it. Because remember what I said earlier, the first few inches of water in, in a pool or a spa, sunlight's hitting it. And that UV light from the sun is going to alter whatever values and you're going to get false readings, false low readings. The best thing to do is collect a sample from, you know, bending your elbow and then dip the test strip in that sample water. That will give you a correct reading. And then you can, you know, go in the test strip and match it against your printed color standard, whatever you happen to have, to get the right possible value. You've done your test. Now what? Well. You got to make sure all of your pieces are cleaned and rinsed out properly 
in between tests. Even if there's caps on the test files or the comparator system, whatever it is you're using, you got to rinse them off because even the smallest amount of residue from a previous test could interfere with your next test. You're going to need to clean out the comparator block, the test file, the caps, because residue in there can affect the test, particularly with the DPD reagents, whether they're liquids or powders or tablets or whatnot, doesn't matter. You can rinse out everything. Now I've done the test. What do I do with test results? I mean, do I dump it back in the pool? What, what, what do I do? Well, first of all, dumping it back in the pool, it's, it's not going to hurt anything. Let's put it like that, because you're talking milliliters of something versus tens of thousands of gallons of something. So it's minuscule at best. It's just really poor technique, particularly if you have a customer watching you. The best thing to do is to take your test residue and dump it in a bucket with a lot of water and then dispose of that later down, down a drain, down a sewer or whatnot. It's just really, really poor technique to dump it back in the water. And then this is whether it's a commercial pool or residential pool, it doesn't really matter. It's just really, really poor technique. And the other thing involved with this too is make sure that you have all the stuff that you need to do the test you need to do. A lot of times I've heard people say, well, I went to do a phosphate test, but I only have one of the reagents or, and I used that and I didn't get an answer. Or, and here's a good one. I know I, I didn't have any DPD number one reagent. So I just used the DPD number two reagent and got a pink color. And, and so I used that value. No, no, slap your hand wrong. You've got to use those two reagents together. For example, DPD number one is a buffer. And what a buffer does is actually prepare the sample so that when you add your DPD number two, the indicator, you get the correct shade of pink or red. If you just use DPD number two by yourself, you're just shooting yourself in the foot and you're wasting reagent. You can't be sure that the value that you got is correct. You have to use it together. I also have heard of, and I've actually talked to a lot of old timers, OG people, particularly out on the West Coast for some reason. I don't know why. Have these little one bottle of OTO and one bottle of phenol red, and they take both bottles out of a little leather holster, take off the caps, squirt five drops of each into the pool water directly. Oh, that chlorine level is three parts per million and the pH is 7.4. Bullshit. Doesn't work like that. They're just guessing. They're making themselves look good. Reagents are not designed to be put in a holster. Okay. They're designed to be put in a test kit case or some kind of holder that's designed for that particular product, not in a holster. I don't care how long you've been doing this. I don't care how well you think you can match colors. Doesn't work like that. Shame on you. Slap your hand. You should have been taught better. You weren't taught correctly. Or you again, you're trying to cut corners, okay, and 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 tell customers that hey, you know your pool water is fine, but it's probably not fine to begin with. So, you know, even though you're trying to do a CYA on what you're doing, it's going to come and bite you in that A down the road. Not a good thing to do. Follow the damn instructions. That's why we write them. Another technique you should always be aware of is that never, 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 did I say never enough, never use glass as a container for samples of water. Never put glass anywhere near a pool deck or pool water or spa water because guess what's going to happen? 
the glass is going to fall out of your hands and break and shatter. And it's going to get in the pool or the spa water. And you're going to step in it and cut your foot. And you're going to cuss. And you're going to jump up and down. And people are going to point at you and laugh. <laughs> I can go on with that scenario. But it's, it's, it's stupid. It's dangerous. First of all, getting broken glass in pool water, you, you just might as well drain the entire pool and try to clean it up as best you can. Use plastic. It's there for a reason. It doesn't shatter. It just, just don't use the glass. And one final thing before I leave you all for presentation is some of us who live, some of us, not me, but some of you who may live in the northern climates. I'm in Maryland, so I'm pretty much middle of the road here. But in, in the northern states, uh, it gets kind of cold. Yeah, I know. Uh, freezes. Yeah, no, know that too. And sometimes when you get your testing products, testing systems, the liquid reagents can freeze. And I've gotten a lot of questions about that over the years. Do I, can, do I chuck them? Do I reorder new? What, 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 what do I do? Well, the good news is that, yes, you can reuse them. Just let them thaw out at ambient temperature. I've known some people who also stuck them in their pockets to let them thaw naturally, which is fine. Don't nuke them. Don't put them in an oven, please. You can kind of guess what happens. The, the kicker is, is that after they've thawed out, if there's any kind of crystalline buildup along the tip when you uncap it, that means the reagent has broken down. It's probably not a good idea to use. Contact the manufacturer or whomever. Uh, you use to order the products from for replacement. In some cases, you can get protect from freezing shipping-wise, but usually that's on large palleted orders. For the most part, frozen reagents can be reused again. Worth it for you to, to thaw them out and make sure that they're okay to use. Well, that's it for today, ladies and gentlemen. I hope we had a good time together. I know I did. On future broadcasts, we'll be talking about maybe individual parameters and, and little tricks of the trade for each one of them. As always, if you have any ideas for any topics you would like me to talk about, I'd be more than happy to, to entertain them. Send your comments and your suggestions to talkingpools at gmail.com. That's talkingpools at gmail.com, T-A-L-K-I-N-G-P-O-O-L-S at gmail.com. And this is Wayne signing off till next week. Take care. Bye-bye. I just wanted to take a minute to say thank you for listening today. I'm hoping you enjoyed the episode as much as we enjoyed putting it together for you. Listen, it's been a couple of wacky, crazy, screwed up years from pandemic to Poolmageddon. I just want you to know that we are all in this together. If there's anything that we can do for you, send me an email at talkingpools at gmail.com. Again, that's talkingpools at gmail.com. We're here. This is your podcast. We are the Pool People's Podcast of the Pool People for the Pool People by the Pool People's Podcast. This one is about you. So thank you for tuning in and listening. Do me a favor. Click subscribe before you go. That way you don't miss an episode. 